I'm glad to see mental health being talked about more. But mental health being talked about more does not necessarily mean better access to mental illness care. There's a difference between mental health and mental illness, and especially the more stigmatized mental illnesses. So I just want us to include the conversation to be a more nuanced and deep, and perhaps even talking about some of the less, almost you can say relatable types of illnesses, because everyone can feel like they can relate to depression because everyone feels sadness sometimes. That's just scratching the surface of the Welcome to the Young Changemakers Podcast Season 4. In this episode, we will be talking to inspiring young people from all around the world to explore how they are making a positive change in their communities. This podcast is a global changemakers production. To learn more about how you can also make a difference, visit our website global-changemakers.net. Enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Young Changemakers podcast. We're so excited that you've taken time out of your day to spend with us. Today, we're really excited to have Diana Chow uh, with us today to talk about mental health and her organization, Letters to Strangers. Well, thank you, Diana, for agreeing to be a part of our podcast. It's so nice to have you. And I'm really excited to talk about mental health. It's such an important topic. And I think you do a really good job of talking about how it's personal for everyone, which I think sometimes can get lost. And especially going through a pandemic the last couple of years, it's definitely a topic that has come up to the forefront of a lot of the issues that we're talking about. Why don't we start with you talking about what led you to start your organization, Letters to Strangers? Sure, yeah, thank you for having me. So I started Letters to Strangers when I was 14, and that was when I was a sophomore in high school. I always like to say with this that I have to admit, I never intended for it to become anything big. I know nowadays a lot of people know what like a nonprofit is and like they're talking about how to start it and such. But especially back when I was first starting it, the only reason I was interested in doing it as like a little student club in my high school was because of my own experience since I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 13 and I survived a series of suicide attempts. And as a first-generation immigrant who was living beneath a poverty line with parents who don't speak English, it was very difficult to access healthcare. Uh, not, you know, even considering the American healthcare system's complexities in general. Mm-hmm. And so I had found a lot of healing through writing, and especially writing letters to strangers. And mm-hmm. so that was why I started Letters to Strangers. And I didn't know what a nonprofit was. I had no concept of such a thing. Um, I had no plans for it to expand beyond my high school, but people from nearby heard about what we were doing. And especially because this was like, what, like 2014-ish? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this was before the huge, huge wave of talking about mental health on social media. And so most of the time when you heard about mental health, it was in kind of a stigmatized state. And more importantly, it wasn't usually talked about by a person of color. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people who were looking for youth peer support and were lacking that sort of peer understanding who found what I was doing were extra interested because I kind of looked like them in a way. Mm -hmm. And so 
as people heard about what we were doing, they reached out about wanting to do similar things. And so then Letters to Strangers grew and grew. And so that's how it became today the largest global youth for youth mental health nonprofit. Mm -hmm. That's really awesome that, you know, you took an experience that you were going through and then now you're able to connect with so many people because it's clearly something people are going through and are having trouble talking about. You providing that kind of platform, especially based off of your own experience, is really, really great. I, okay, so here's another caveat I have to throw, throw in. Mm-hmm. Is that due to, uh, given all the years I've worked with people in this field, I've seen firsthand how the increase in talking about it on social media has correlated with almost a trendy version of mental health. Mm-hmm. And the reason I mention this is because I've had, I remember very distinctly one time I had a high school student come up to me after a speech and she was saying how depression and anxiety aren't cool anymore because everyone has them now. Now the next cool thing is bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And I just remembered feelings just like my heart dropped because it became the sort of thing where people were used to just throwing around these terms mm-hmm. and using them as like, um, you know, what sounds like a good thing to say, but not necessarily being followed up with the actual education on what these diagnoses involve. And so something that left me in a comatose state, mm-hmm. um, something that was just seeing as a way for some people to almost be relatable. And I just wish that we would talk about mental health without needing to emphasize these sort of painful nitty gritty parts or uh, diagnoses associated with it to recognize that we can normalize mental health conversations without forcing the diagnosis into the conversation. Because otherwise we have a lot of times when people want to will feel like they have to say, oh, well, I'm depressed too, or whatever. And it doesn't, it's not like they necessarily are not, but mm-hmm. just that we shouldn't have to force a clinical diagnosis upon ourselves, even if that is an actual diagnosis we have, just to feel like we can have the conversation. So that was my caveat. And I wanted to say that before I mentioned anything about any pains I go through. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up with a lot of violence and abuse and, mm-hmm. um, I was an, I was basically independently raising myself and my brother by the time I was about 12 years old. And so uh, a lot of this stuff was just kind of, you can imagine a given, given my situation. Yeah. Um, there's not much else to say about that, except just that it's different for everybody. There's different mm-hmm. types of, you know, sub disorders within H disorder. Like, for example, bipolar disorder has multiple types, yeah. um, things like that. So just important for people to keep these things in mind. Right. Yeah. And then going back to what you talked about, like people using it for trendiness, speak a little bit more about, do you feel like people are just self-declaring that they're depressed or anxiety or have anxiety as like a trend? Or is it just they're not aware of what it actually is and kind of making those self-diagnoses? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, mostly out of ignorance, I would assume. But it's just like I've had so many times when I'll talk about, let's say, like a depressive episode and then someone will be like, oh, yeah, I'm depressed. I feel sad, too. And I'm like, sadness and depression are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, people tend to equate symptoms to a diagnosis because as we talk about these terms more as almost like buzzwords, it Mm -hmm. becomes that we feel like we know it more just because we hear it more. But actually, our education of it isn't increasing. And so what's being emphasized and ricocheted more in our minds of our understanding of it is like these uh, stereotypes or media or whatever else. And so it becomes like, you know, difficult to draw that line between, well, 
Am I feeling an emotion that deserves to be taken seriously, you know, regardless of the severity, but mm -hmm. that I feel like I have to have a diagnosis in order for people to actually care about it right. or something else. And so this is why I say like, it's so important for us to normalize talking about just emotions in general without it have to be in the context of like a mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, because the dangerous part of that is that you also see how this almost turning into buzzwords in a sense leads to people with more severe symptoms feeling like they have to turn to even more severe actions in order to be taken seriously because otherwise people dismiss them as, oh, well, of course, everybody's depressed. Like, what's new about you? Right. Okay. That's a really important point. Do you feel like that's something through your organization you guys are work on, working on addressing right now? Well, so I can give you a little more information about our organization. Yeah. Uh, so Letters to Strangers directly impacts over 35,000 people every single year, with hundreds of thousands more indirectly with our educational content and such. Our main three prongs of work is through first, of course, our anonymous handwritten letter exchanges, which usually happen between students on a campus or uh, through our free online public platform for the general population. And so we exchange over 20,000 letters every year. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the second thing we do, it's science-based peer education, which okay. includes the world's first youth for youth mental health guidebook written entirely by 14 to 21 year olds. And it's like almost 80,000 words dives really deep into intersection and we last December, so about a month ago, as of this recording, launched the Teacher's Handbook Mental Health Curriculum Guide to go along with that guidebook as almost like a textbook of sorts. Mm -hmm. And so all of these resources are free to download digitally, but we also have purchasable physical copies. Mm -hmm. And these all address like, the nitty gritties of what mental illnesses are, but also how different identities and backgrounds can interact with it, mm -hmm. as well as just writing it from youth peer perspective, but not jeopardizing the scientific integrity since everything was reviewed by medical professionals and we have about 1,000 scientific citations. And then the third thing is our grassroots policy-based advocacy, which includes last November, we launched the first Pan-African Mental Health Hotline, completely toll-free 24-7 for callers from Liberia and from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, GMT for callers in other countries of Africa at 9898. So all of these are methods that we take to increase just mental health education in general mm -hmm. so that we can have that supplement and awareness that grows in society. What would you say has been some of your learnings when working with individuals from like different backgrounds, different ethnicities when it comes to mental health? We talk about differences or even like similarities that you've seen across the different ethnicities and backgrounds. Letters to Strangers operates in over 20 countries and that means that we're always talking with a lot of different types of people. We are very much aware of how different cultural factors can affect mental well-being. At the end of the day, there are certain overarching themes that you'll find across different places, right? So uh, fear of bringing shame or dishonor upon the family, uh, gender norms that are affecting the way mental health is able to be expressed or talked about, um, perhaps traditions that may end up resulting in violence or abuse and how that could pass down from generation to generation or even just being a minority in a country where maybe there's race, uh, racial discrimination and such you know so all of these things are going to affect mental health and 
one of the reasons why we were so excited when our guidebook came out is that we really took a deep dive into these things. Since you'll often find on the internet, if you try to look for something specific to community, it'll be like a one web page, really like generic, written by like someone who's very far removed from that community. And we wanted to do a very deep dive because there's so much nuance. Ours was the first deep dive into race, ethnicity, and mental health uh, since the U.S. Surgeon General's report over 20 years ago. It's stuff that we've spent a lot of time researching, talking to people about, and just trying to communicate and educate with. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested because you talked about the teacher's textbook guide that you also created to complement the, the youth guide. What was the reasoning behind doing that and how have you seen that being used in the classroom? Well, we literally launched a month ago, so it's still very okay. much something that is uh, in the in the works of you know getting uh, rolled out, but the reason we made it was because our guidebook we sold out of five print copies now, and it was just a really big hit. But the thing is, a lot of teachers who wanted to use it in their classrooms were having difficulty with finding the time to create a whole curriculum out of it. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to save them some time. So we worked with an expert panel of lifetime career educators, uh, psychologists, etc., to create the sort of curriculum guide, which uses the guidebook as like a textbook. Mm -hmm. And then so this handbook for teachers sort of just provides like key concepts, vocabulary, assessment ideas, and also, of course, talking about protective factors so that it's not just all doom and gloom. And so we're rolling it out in a few pilot schools over the next semester, and okay. then we'll be pushing it to more schools after that. I have no doubt that it's going to be so useful for teachers and students, especially having those conversations with a grown-up if they don't always get to do that in their homes. Why did you start with writing letters? Like, why was writing the go-to medium of expression for you when you were going through, when you found out about your diagnosis? It ultimately comes down to a question of access. And like I mentioned before, I was, in a, uh, I was living in a very poor household by American standards, mm -hmm. and uh, my parents didn't speak English, and so accessing the healthcare system was very difficult. Mm -hmm. And also, there was a lot of stigma involved culturally and such that prevented me from seeking consistent care in either case. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at ways that people were talking about sort of healing themselves where they can, and a big thing that always comes up is the concept of journaling. Mm -hmm. And I know journaling works really well for a lot of people, but personally, because I was in such a terrible mental state, it led to oftentimes the sort of negative spiraling where I just kept on echoing my worst fears and it just dragged deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do something else. And I was thinking, well, you know, at the time I didn't really have friends that I felt like I could talk to. And so I thought if I could just talk to even a stranger who I can think of as the ideal person who would listen to me and not judge me and all of that, that became sort of my, I guess you can say read, reader mm -hmm. in my head. And so then I started writing um, these letters to that person. And I found that it really allowed me to think about how I was being kind and empathetic to these people I never even met. And, mm -hmm. and I deserve the same for myself. Mm -hmm. and so as that helped me find my own voice and start to see other sides of things, I thought it could help other people as well. Mm -hmm. I think learning to be kind to yourself is definitely something people struggle with. It, all, it always seems like we're harder on ourselves than we are on other people sometimes. Since starting this platform, what would you say has been your biggest highlight? Other youth and even just where the conversation on mental health is today compared to 
where it was when you first started this organization? There's a lot of different things you could say are highlights. I mean, of course, like all the content and works uh, that we put out are all things I'm very proud of. Mm-hmm. And it's all stuff that required a lot, a lot of time. Um, like even for the guidebook, I spent a long time interviewing people from all over the place about um, their mental health journeys. And in the process, I almost got shot and all of that. And so I've put myself in a lot of different uh, situations and conversations to uh, try to understand these topics. And I think that's probably why as much as I am grateful to see people talk about mental health more and more, it also kind of angers me, um, to be quite frank. Um the way that I was talking about earlier, how it's become a little bit of a trend. And the reason I say this is because every time we post something on our Instagram, for example, well, like all, basically all the comments we'll get are just like bots. They're like, oh, we're from a mental health activist clothing company. We would love for you to be an ambassador or something like that. Or every day I get like tens of DMs every single day that are like, oh, we opened up a new mental health uh Instagram profile, could you give us a follow? And it's just the same old quotes over and over. And it just got me really tired because I'm glad to see mental health being talked about more. But mental health being talked about more does not necessarily mean that their access to mental illness care. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between mental health and mental illness, and especially the more stigmatized mental illnesses like schizophrenia um, or and other psychotic disorders. That's a a medical term. I'm not trying to imply anything with that. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all things that are still very much not discussed at all. And people still very much think of them in the uh, more stereotypical ways. So I just want us to include the conversation to be a more nuanced and deep mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps even talking about some of the less almost you can say relatable types of illnesses because everyone can feel like they can relate to depression because everyone feels sadness sometimes. Right. But you know, that's just scratching the surface of mental well-being. You also talked about how your organization works on like policy advocacy. What would you say are some of the things that you've noticed within maybe the U.S. healthcare system with relation to mental health? Some of the things that, you know, we could do better. Not just the U.S., but also, you know, really worldwide. We have different teams all across, um, you know, continents on the ground mm-hmm. looking to these things. But I think... The, the the for example in the U.S. right like there's just a lot of disparities across the state lines and so in California we recently passed the Senate Bill 224 which allows for a mental health curriculum to be implemented in health classes by 2024 which is great and it's sponsored by uh, my local senator who I've worked with before as well as you know previously I've worked with our Congressional Representative Judy Chu, who I worked with to bring the Stop Stigma in Our Communities Act back to the congressional floor. Mm -hmm. The thing is, like, these are all efforts that's been taken not across the country. And you can imagine that if we try to implement them on a federal level, it's very difficult to do given the partisanship of things. Uh, You know, that's one thing. The other thing is, so, so there is the mental health parity law, which basically says that any health insurance that covers, you know, X, Y, Z, that cannot be reduced just because that illness is a mental illness instead of like a physical illness, mm-hmm. which is great. 
But there's a lot of different loopholes that insurance companies use to bypass this. Mm -hmm. And also most people don't know that this law exists. And so a lot of times people feel like mental health care is more difficult to access than it actually is nowadays mm -hmm. um, since the Parity Act was passed. So I would say that, you know, having more education about this is super important. We have a, a whole section in the guidebook called how to navigate the U.S. healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we would like to do that for every healthcare system, but it's impossible for all countries in the world. Yeah. Um, so it's a starting point. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying the episode so far. At Global Changemakers, we support youth to create a positive change towards more inclusive, fair, and sustainable communities. We do this by providing skills development, capacity building, mentoring, and grants. Head to our website, global-changemakers.net, to join our programs and use our resources. Now on with the rest of the episode. I understand your organization does workshops within schools as well as part of your project. What is usually the approach that you take when introducing or talking about mental health with students? Well, it really depends on what the demographics are okay. and what sort of education about mental health those students have previously had. For the most part, we try to talk about some things like basics of what different types of mental illnesses are, what are some of the pain languages you can use to uh, spot when someone's going through a difficult time, whether or not that's a mental illness. Um, it doesn't matter. The point is to understand that it's okay to seek preventative treatment and therapy and learning those strategies regardless of if you have a diagnosis or not. And um, talking about protective factors as well as some risk factors and how the different diversity in that community how that can show up in different mental health conditions for mm -hmm. people. So to just be more aware of that, things like that. So you talked about identifying pain points. Do you mind talking a little bit so that our listeners can also take some of that advice on how they can spot those? Okay, so in the guidebook, for example, we have like detailed lists of what the clinical symptoms are usually for a particular illness. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to like a general workshop and also just for people in daily life, we're not going to go around remembering like hundreds to thousands of different symptoms. And so instead, what we advocate for is to just remember that there are certain ways that people exhibit pain that mm -hmm. can across all different types of mental health concerns, whether or not it's an illness. Mm -hmm. And so the acronym we use for this is called empathizing. Mm -hmm. E stands for eat, so eating too little, eating too much. M stands for mind distractions, mm -hmm. uh, which is like, so it could be personal, like you're cleaning too much all of a sudden, or social, like you want to go to parties all the time, even though you usually don't. Mm -hmm. uh, P is for pride, so maybe the pride is seeking a little bit more proactive affirmations or denials of things that could hurt it. A is for anger, T is for tears, H is for hurting the self or you know, that could be mentally, physically, verbally. Well, I for imprudent behavior. So it could be okay. like, you know, acting really recklessly all of a sudden. Um, Z is for Zanny. And when I say Zanny, it's sort of like adopting a humor or character or facade to be someone who is not the you that's going through the things you're going through right now. Mm -hmm. But the thing that this particularly manifests as with people um, of the younger population is through emojis. And so you often have these conversations, right, where you're like, oh, my God, I just want to die laughing face, like crying emoji face or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, 
uh, Schrodinger's cat of sorts, because it's like you almost sometimes add those emojis on so that if the other person doesn't want to deal with all this intensity right now, they can mm-hmm. go along with it and treat it as a joke. But sometimes it's like you actually do want to talk about it. You just don't want to be overbearing. So noticing when someone's doing that, just checking in, you know, I know it might seem a little bit like, oh my God, dude, just take a joke. But like, hey, it doesn't hurt to ask. And it's for not present. So, you know, maybe you're not physically there or you're physically there, but you're mentally drifting or you're just Mm -hmm. being silent. Mm -hmm. And then G is for gross productivity. So where, um, you know, you're overworking, but not as just a mind distraction, but to the point where your worth is derived from that productivity. Oh, I forgot the other eye. Uh, the other eye, sorry, there's two eyes. But the yeah. other eye is for insomnia slash hypersomnia. So sleeping okay. too little, sleeping too much. Okay. I think the one about the emojis is really interesting. And I know, you know, sometimes not specifically related to mental health, but if I'm trying to bring up an uncomfortable topic and I'm not sure how someone is going to respond, I've definitely used emojis as a way to test out the waters to see if I get a response. So that's a really crucial one, actually, to that you guys talk about. I didn't even think about it. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why we really value the fact that we're youth for youth, mm-hmm. since it's something that you wouldn't really imagine lets your grandparents really understanding the nuances of. I think the other piece I really wanted to talk about was How do you support a friend or a family member that's going through mental health or mental illness in a way that you are really there for them? And, you know, how do you communicate that? How do you be present for them? Yeah. So first things first, uh, everyone has mental health, right? So there's a distinction between mental health and mental illness. And I think sometimes we get into this little bit of a difficulty because if we think about it as like, oh no, we have to have a mental health conversation. It sounds like such a serious, difficult thing. Mm -hmm. But talking about just emotions in general is going to be important regardless of if there's a mental illness present or not. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to remember that your, your role is not to be the knight in shining armor. By which I mean, a lot of times people go into these conversations really fearful because they feel like they have to know exactly what's the right thing to say and how to solve the problem. But that's not your job. Because at the end of the day, the number one thing I hear from people that I've experienced myself for someone who is going through a mental illness is this feeling of like you're losing your autonomy in a sense, because people start to have certain assumptions about you once they hear you have a diagnosis, you start to feel like maybe you're being, you're becoming dependent on a certain medication or whatever, like your independence is at jeopardy. And so then when other people come in, even with really good intentions, saying like, hey, here's how you can solve your problem, it can often feel a little condescending because it's like, oh, great, another person who's like treating me like I'm not a person with my own judgments and values and ability to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is most of the time, any suggestions someone makes is probably already thought of by the person you're trying to help. Yeah. Yeah. So I always tell people, rather than thinking about it like, oh, I need to know what to say or how to solve their problem, think about it more like your role is to be more of a partner in crime, to walk alongside that person Mm -hmm. as they figure out the road they themselves want to walk. Mm -hmm. So whether that be reminding them of their autonomy by having them help you with something that feels a little maybe silly, like, oh, how do I text back my crush or whatever? But, Mm -hmm. you know, something that makes that reminds them that, hey, you see them as an actual full person who has stuff that they can actually do. Also offering things as questions rather than like solutions that you feel like would work so speaking in i basically Mm -hmm. um, i think rather than saying like oh well why don't you just try yoga which uh, makes assumption that you'll work for everybody you can say like i've found 
that yoga tends to work for me, but what about you? Or something like that. You know, so recognizing that whatever we say ultimately is a reflection of what we believe, but that might not work for them and that's okay. Emphasizing the fact that everyone's journey is personal to them based off of, you know, their own background and experiences and it's important to recognize that yeah there's an acronym called wait or why am i talking Mm -hmm. and i think it's really useful in these cases because so i used to be a crisis counselor for the uh, national suicide prevention hotline Mm -hmm. and that's one of the biggest things and first things they'll tell you is we always feel like we have to say something in response but to be honest most of the time that's not what the other person needs. And it's really not conducive to the conversation. So just showing with your body language, with questions you ask that echo what they said, questions that rec- uh, that confirm if you understood their emotions correctly, all of these things are much better than trying to reply just for the sake of replying. It's almost like showing that you're listening and that you're actively paying attention to what they're saying. Yes, yes. And yeah, and, and part of that is, you know how like a lot of times, for example, when you're applying to a job, people will tell you like, oh, you should try to personalize your cover letter. Or when you apply for a certain college, you might want to include something in your college application that is specific to that school. So they feel like you actually are listening or you're genuinely interesting them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of a similar principle here where, you know, if we say something blanket, like, oh, I'm here for you, which is like, very good. I'm glad that the person is there. But at a certain point, it starts to feel just like if every single person is just like, okay, I'm here for you. Okay, I'm here for you. It starts to feel like, well, what does that really mean? Yeah. And so instead, it's a lot more effective to ask questions about things that you already have thought of, you've taken the mental work to do that you think they might be able to benefit from and ask them if they need it so they don't have to take that mental space to a lot more tasks. Like, I'm going to go get some food. I, I can bring you back take out ramen. You want some? Or mm-hmm. I'm heading to the pharmacy. You want to come with me and we can go pick up your medication together or something like that. Mm-hmm. I also want to circle back to you mentioned the importance of talking about emotions. How can we do better as a society to create a space where people are allowed to express their emotions and talk about it. When I first moved to the U.S., it's a custom where people ask, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing great, thanks. And then you just move on. And I remember I didn't know about that custom. And I was like at this ice cream shop and the guy asked me and I was like, oh, I'm doing terrible because I was. And then he just stared at me in complete shock. A lot uh, of times when I first came here too, you notice they don't actually listen to your response. But even before you've answered, they've like walked away. And you're like, why are you asking me if you don't want to know the answer? It's very much like a a social custom, which Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But the way I try to bypass that is instead of asking that question where we sort of are now trained to have an automatic response to, I'll ask like, Um, How have things been for you these days? You know, the same question, but worded a little bit differently. So it takes a little bit more time for people to process. Mm -hmm. And using that to ease into these conversations. Or you can also ask questions yourself about their emotions. Like if if you're talking with a friend about homework or something, and well, it sounds like this is something that's been really stressing you out. Have you been feeling okay? You know, asking them directly. Mm -hmm. Or even starting by leading by example. Like, to be honest, this thing has been really getting me in a rut. Have you been feeling similarly? what do you think we should do you know things like that because i think another reason why people get scared to talk about mental illness especially with let's say their parents or something like that is 
we feel like it's like this daunting conversation that we need to have, but it doesn't need to be like we go from A to Z immediately, right? right? Like you can start by easing into conversations about emotions and then going deeper and deeper into mental illness if it gets to that point. Mm-hmm. Is there any other thing that you think is important for our listeners to know about this topic, about letters to strangers and how they can support you and all of the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you for asking that. People want to learn more about Letters to Strangers or get involved or even just download our free resources. It can all be found on our website, letters2strangers.org or on social media at L2S Mental Health. Um, L2S, it's like the letter L, the number two, and then the letter S. And I think the one thing I will just add is I know that I was talking earlier about how it feels a little bit like mental health has become a trendy word. And when I say that, I don't want people to walk away thinking that, oh, no, maybe I don't have like XYZ, so I shouldn't talk about it. That's the opposite of my point, right? Like my point is that we should talk about it without feeling like we need to go to the extent of, let's say, self-diagnosis or something like that to be taken seriously. Because all emotions should be cared for and we can all work on better strategies for our mental well-being regardless of an illness or not so that's sort of what i was trying to emphasize it's almost like you should be able to say you're sad and be taken seriously without having to go the extra step and be like i'm depressed in order to be taken seriously exactly exactly yeah. I think it's something that's very simple that all of us can do, but it actually makes a big difference. It's like watching the way we talk about mental illness and suicide. So, for example, one of the most common ways we talk about suicide is by using the term committed suicide. But committed has a criminal connotation to it, like committed a crime. And you wouldn't say someone committed cancer. And cancer is an illness just like a mental illness is an illness. And so we now try to shift towards saying died by suicide instead. And so, or like instead of saying succeeded in suicide, we say completed suicide so that it's not a success. But the number one thing, and I think this happens a lot, especially, okay, so (laughs) there's this term called copycat suicides or cluster suicides. Mm -hmm. And they basically are when a bunch of suicides happen in a row and they are particularly likely to affect young people because young people are usually on the same campus in the same community. And so they have a lot of the same concerns that someone who might have died by suicide um, experienced. And so the telltale signs of a copycat suicide is when the person dies by suicide using the same method as the previous person. One of the biggest ways that this happens, and this is oftentimes an unintentional thing, is like when even as a student reporter, but also just as someone, maybe you get interviewed by a local news station about, you know, what happened on campus or whatever, is people want to talk about explicitly the means of suicide of the previous person. Or maybe they end up glamorizing or idolizing that previous person almost to the point where they become like a martyr of sorts. Mm -hmm. And both of these are very, very dangerous behaviors because when you explicitly mention means of suicide, it can often become an inspiration of sorts in the worst way possible to a person who is going through something difficult. And when we glamorize or idolize someone after, um, you know, they've died, mm-hmm. it can lead to a point where, let's say, someone else has been feeling like, you know, they've been bullied a lot. They just want to feel cared about. And they see how all of a sudden everyone is praising and loving this other person after their death. And so then this person feels like, okay, well, maybe if I die, people will start treating me the same way finally. Mm-hmm. And so then they feel like that is a valid way out, but it's not. This is uh, why we often talk about at Letters to Strangers importance of postvention. What 
strategies we can take after a suicide occurs to make sure that we remember the person, we honor their memory, but we have to keep on living and try to return to some sort of routine because the more that we disrupt our lives to glamorize this person, the more that we can actually lead to immediate risk of copycat suicides. Wow, I didn't I didn't know about that. Would you, would it be inappropriate for me to say it's almost like this way people think they can get attention or they can get like the validation that they're looking for? If you think about 13 Reasons Why, which was such a popular show, one of the big reasons why a lot of mental health advocates were against it was because, one, it was explicitly showing means of suicide, which is not necessary for people to talk about suicide. It shouldn't even be included. But second of all, it was showing it as if now that this person has died, and they are finally getting sort of revenge, quote unquote, on all the people who have hurt them. But the thing is, no matter how sweet revenge is, or no matter how much people can end up actually changing their minds about you, if you're dead, you are not there to see those things. Exactly. Yeah, that is a big part of it. And I mentioned this also because when I was in high school, I lost a dear friend to suicide. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had felt so angry. And it's a human instinct to want to almost memorialize that person and glamorize them because you want everyone to know how amazing they are and you want to honor them as much as you can. Mm -hmm. It's a processing of grief and it's very understandable. But I didn't know back then what I do know now, which is that all those actions that we were taking to build these huge memorials to try to have all of these big, not celebrations, but so something like that in memory of the person was actually not the most helpful way if we wanted to prevent similar things from happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. More stuff that's also in the guidebook, but condensed version here. <laughs> <laughs> so many things that you do that you don't even think about. That's why I wanted to talk about like, how do you support a friend? Because I've definitely had friends who've been depressed. And I remember one point I kept asking him, like, what do you need from me? And he was like, all I need is for you to just be there. You don't need to fix anything. And you're right, you'll always know I need to fix this. And it's actually just about listening and being there for someone. So yeah. And I mean, even just caring for someone takes a lot of mental energy. Mm -hmm. And so as much as we want to be of help to someone else, if it starts to take a toll on you, you have every right to step back and just let them know like, hey, I care about you a lot. I feel like I don't have the right mental capacity right now to be there for you the way you deserve. Mm -hmm. And so um, for both our sakes, I'm going to take a step back for myself to sort of rejuvenate. I'm still here if you need me, but I just want to let you know, I'm not trying to go out of my way to ignore you or anything like that. I'm just doing this for both of our sakes. And I, I love you and things like that. You know, just being mm -hmm. very upfront and communicating that. Yeah, I think communicating that is, so, is important and definitely can be a little bit of a struggle. But once you've said that, that's why, then people can be like, okay, like, you know, it's not that they don't care. They just also need their own space, which, of course, everyone needs. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us. It's so inspiring to see all of the work that you're doing to help young people based on your experience, but also kind of expanding it to not just your experience with the U.S. health system, but also to other countries. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to reach out, you can contact us via email at info at global-changemakers.net. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions. Join our global community of young changemakers on Instagram at Global Changemakers, Twitter at WeAreGCM, and Facebook. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, and support. 
to help us continue to inspire more young people. Share this podcast on your social media or contribute with your donations. Find all the info and links in the comments below and see you in the next episode.